Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Well, everybody, we are wrapping up summer vacation 
So we have a different background. I am currently in Virginia at my parents with Oso oh Fresh Pool Hair with both tiny humans, multiple dogs and multiple cats. So if there are spontaneous intrusions, remember we are live. <laughs> so huzzah for summer vacay with the grands in White Oak, Virginia, baby. Erin, <laughs> they fed the horses today. And I was so proud because Goose even touched them. Well, I mean, he got close, but like he did feed them. And this is, this is awesome. So how's your day going? It's good. My best friend had her baby this week. He is perfection though, people. He's He's like a little chunky butterball. He looks like a turkey. (laughs) Okay. Well, now that I'm blushing, go team. I mean, she had the baby. I thought like. She had the baby. She's, we're just not telling everyone the name. Oh, oh. (laughs) So y'all heard it here, but it will not be advertised. Okay. So circle of safety. Okay. Folks, before we get going into all of our lofty things that are about to occur, so we're going to focus on private practice triaging and kind of like the how-to behind the scenes, just some action items that are upcoming next week. So on Friday, I think after this episode drops on the 19th, I'm doing a live two-hour course on not being a silo clinician for private practice folks. Erin, do you remember offhand when your live course is coming out? I think it's September 30th. Okay. So Erin's doing a live course then on interaction of play and relation and PFD, and it highlights highly complex children. Yes. And it highlights all of the strengths that she has. Also, what else? I'm speaking at Ospeak in October, just outside of Cleveland. I think it's like an hour and a half west of Cleveland. So Aaron and I have all of this in the link tree and we'll be at ASHA. So come visit us at ASHA because Speech Therapy PD will have a booth. I wish we could sneak Cola Kitty into the Airbnb because I would like to cuddle with her. (laughs) She won't take treats. And she also will not eat store brand cat food because she's a princess. Even if it's wet food, she refuses it. So I had to get her these like kind of gross, but they're like squeezable pouches that just have like, it's like creamy, but it's like chickeny and she really loves it. So I owe it to her because I've left her alone a couple nights. So I got her some treats, but it's her new favorite thing other than cheese and turkey and lettuce. So and lettuce. But she's cost me a lot of money. She's really handing in. So I tried to get her Publix brand chicken food and she won't eat it. Refuses mm. it. Yeah. I mean, oh my God, I love that cat. <laughs> okay. All right, folks, that's kind of that. Let's do with us. All right. So if you're joining in, we have a lot to cover today. And this is a topic that Erin and I kind of get, we field a lot of questions, especially at our jobs about private practice management, right? Please know that we don't have the time or energy to serve in the capacity as managers because we'd rather treat where clinicians first. But because of the advocacy and the volunteerism, I mean, Erin's the South Carolina lead on the baby net team for Skisha. So that's the baby net is the state early intervention system. And so Erin leads the committee for how to advocate and for changes at the state level. So even though we don't 
serve in managerial roles, all of the stuff that we do behind the scenes, we field the questions and we end up helping the managers do those little details because that's, we're just nerdy and we're passionate. We want to make sure things are done ethical and that they're done right. So as this episode was an outgrowth of a lot of conversations that we've been having about troubleshooting and mentorship and, hey, I see this and we feel this. And so we've decided just to sit still and to turn it into an episode. So here we go. We're going to cover a lot. We're going to cover triaging and we're going to cover ethically doing comprehensive evals and then go into goal writing. But I want to preface this really quickly with what are resources to actually set up a private practice? Because that's key. If at some point in time, if you're in private practice long enough, you want to do your own private practice. I mean, I know that I did. And I did it until I got sick and tired of arguing with insurance companies and micromanaging details. And now I don't want to do practice management. I just want to treat, right? So there are some really good resources. I'm going to drop one of my favorites in a chat box. It is called the American Academy of Private Practice in Speech Language Pathology and Audiology. So if you are thinking about opening up your own private practice, I would recommend that you join this association. They legit have possibly one of the worst acronyms in the history of acronyms, AAPPSPA.org. But if you're a member of this association, you get free legal advice and counsel once a year. They have examples of patient intake documents. They have examples of HIPAA documents. They have examples of contracts to give to either a 1099 employee or a W-2 employee. They have a annual convention where they talk about how to expand and grow your business and even recommendations on what type of EMR systems to use. And that's included, I mean, you have to pay to go to the conference, but most of those things are included in your annual dues membership. And so I I do highly recommend that if you are thinking about creating your own, reach out to that source. And then the other page that I want to share really quick is Asha has really, since I, I started mine eight years ago. Asha has way outdone themselves with their own private practice page. And there's a plethora of resources there, as well as how to create a brand, how to create your image, how to write a mission statement, how to write simple contracts, and the simple how-to behind the scenes. But what I like is that they also have a couple of CEU courses that you can take where their legal counsel has volunteered time to, they have like a course book. And I took the two hour webinar. And then I also took like, I purchased the course book and their legal counsel has given them advice on how to draft these documents. I mean, yes, you have to pay for them, but like they did a smashingly good job. So if you're looking at starting your own private practice, I would recommend those as like really good resources for starting. So Aaron, any other thoughts? Like when you were looking at going into private practice, what swayed you? What made you think to do private practice? Because you've been, I mean, NICU, home health, like. I mean, I'm in a little bit of a different situation because we're a nonprofit. So we like navigate things a little bit differently. I mean, basically a private practice, we just have different roles. 
I think, I mean, I started our in-home program, so I had to navigate a lot of that, but I had like your support. I know that the independent clinician, she will put out some like free resources to help. And she has her own course that like is pretty expensive, but she has a lot of resources that are very helpful. If if it's something you like really, really want to invest in, she's done a lot of that work for you as well, which is really cool. I think if you're looking into working in private practice, making sure you're asking those questions of ethically, like how they navigate your contract, how they navigate scheduling. Unfortunately, some of those things you don't realize until you get into the actual private practice. And we're all learning and we all don't know everything. I mean, Michelle and I have learned a lot because we're involved in Skisha and the organizations that we're involved in. So like Michelle said, I answer a lot of questions because I know a lot about billing. I know what codes pay what. I know what codes we're supposed to bill for feeding because I ask those questions. But making sure you're somewhere where they're willing to do better once they know better is the best advice because some people are really good with this, with what they've been doing forever and want to keep doing that. And that's not always how life works and our field is always changing. So asking, I always say when I, when I interviewed for the company I work for now, like I asked how comfortable they were with change because you're not comfortable with change then kind of a problem, especially if you're a private practice owner, because you got to be willing to shift. Mm -hmm. Okay. So down in the corner, I put in links to everything that we've rattled off already. And one of them is a link to the ASHA super bill. You'll have to actually pick the template for speech pathologists because there's a PDF for audiologists as well. So depending on how you are set up, Your referrals are going to come in, but you may even have to start out with simply obtaining your referrals, right? So when Erin came on and she started switching over and adding in that home health piece, like they had to, there was marketing, there was outreach to physicians and some of her families who had more complex kids just said, hey, we want to switch to in-homes. I stop right there when we say in homes, we're not going to deep dive into the survival that was home health therapy during the pandemic, because that's just, I am emotionally unprepared to go there today after having spent 40 minutes in the pool with my children like an hour ago. So like, we're just going to, we're going to pretend that that whole thing just didn't happen in this moment. (laughs) Just move forward. Fair. But After you have created your mission statement and you've got your branding and you've got your business cards, and I'd recommend a Facebook page and maybe a small website, and you've updated your LinkedIn account, and I'm rattling these off here so that you're ticking them off on like what I need to do. And you may also want to consider making a LinkedIn page for your company in addition to yourself, another business branding idea. Once you have all of that complete and succinct, it is best that you put a face to your image and actually reach out to the physicians, right? Because of COVID, you may not actually be able to go to the physician's offices, but you could write up an email introducing yourself and attach your CV and put your image in the email and put your branding, put all your hyperlinks. If you can go to the doctor's office, then go to the doctor's offices. 
if you are getting in network with your state early intervention system, sometimes that requires additional contracts before you can provide services within your state early intervention system. So reach out to, I know in, in South Carolina, it's called BabyNet. In Virginia, you have to have contracts with the different entities, like where I provided services before we moved to South Carolina. It was part of the Rural Infant Service Plan. But you need to know that and then reach out to those individuals and be like, hi, this is my strength. These are the populations I want to work with. I am available. And then keep politely reaching out until you've hit max capacity on your wait list. Because normally once you hit max capacity, that beautiful moment in time when you're like, wow, I've got the perfect schedule. Then out of nowhere, the floodgates are going to open and every referral in the sun is going to come through. And inevitably you get hit with, I have all these patients I can't treat. And now I feel like I'm failing because you get that pressure on you that how am I going to help these babies? Aaron, yeah. take it from there, ma'am. How do, how do uh, you do that? <laughs> that's a work in progress. I mean, so I started in home. And then the nice thing about being in a private practice is that you can treat the patients that dependent, but you can treat the patients that you feel you can serve the best. And for me, that was the patients that most medically needed it, which is part of the triaging process. So the in-home program that I built was built to serve the patients that couldn't come into the clinic that were very medically complex that not to say this to make it sound anyway, but that the other clinicians at the clinic I worked at didn't feel comfortable treating. And they would say that this isn't anything. This is just, they didn't have the training to treat the kids that were on vents and had feeding tubes and had cleft lip and palate. That was just something that they didn't feel as comfortable with. And so I had to then create a triaging system for our intake coordinator because I'm well aware that if someone calls me and says, Hey, I have this patient, these are their diagnoses. This is why they need help. That child will live in my brain forever rent-free. And I will never forget about them until they get off my wait list. So I knew personally, and then we talk about it every morning on the way to work. (laughs) Yeah. I knew that I had to give this responsibility to somebody else, but I also knew that that meant that I had to create a system for her to navigate which patients were, I don't like the word priority because every patient should be a priority, but which patients were most medically needed to be seen. And that was kind of where I started from a triaging standpoint of age was always included. If you get an infant, they're going to go higher on the wait list because they, if they already need services, like they need services now, because if you can get them early intervention, then the chances that they will need continued therapy lesson because of their, you intervening right away. Medical stability, is this patient failure to thrive? Is this patient at risk? And I don't like that word either, but are they possibly getting a feeding tube, possibly not getting a feeding tube? Are they waiting on the surgery? There were a lot of medical factors that we looked into from that medical necessity, which I think are important to consider. We also looked at, and this is a part of it. I mean, I have patients that couldn't make it to the clinic for whatever reason that was, and that was going to impact because I could offer in clinic or in home from what services we could provide. 
And then also looking at, so we looked at age, we looked at diagnoses for me, because there were less feeding therapists in our area. If the child needed feeding versus needing speech, feeding was going to take priority because other clinicians at my clinic could provide speech. And there were more clinicians elsewhere that could provide speech services. They were going to sit on the wait list longer for feeding. And this is not a perfect science. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, for those of you that are actually live, I'm kind of curious how many of y'all are solo practitioners versus you manage a practice and they have multiple clinicians. Because when Erin was doing this, she is in a practice where there's multiple clinicians, but she's the only one that has the skill set that she's bringing to the table, right? And so when they were triaging the list, they triaged it centered around her advanced skill set in those areas. But if you are looking at a, a wait list and say you have three therapists or you have 15 clinicians on staff, I would pull your clinicians and find out what do they view as their strengths in treatment and where would they like to grow their strengths? Because you may have somebody who really, really likes speech sound disorders, but is interested in dyslexia, but we know courtesy of all the work being done by like Dr. Kelly Farquharson always butcher her name, but that there is an intimate relationship between speech sound disorders and dyslexia. Now solo last four years prior to family move multiple therapists for 18 years. Yes, Colleen, exactly. So what we need to do is find out where those clinicians are on staff and where they want to grow their skill set and then feed those patients Mm -hmm. to them to allow them to expand their strengths. Right. And I think there's a balance. And I have this conversation a lot with the clinicians that I work with. Mm-hmm. And it's a struggle because the amount of children that are sitting on wait lists for speech and feeding services is just going to continue to grow. And it's kind of crazy. And we are never going to be able to grow programs to grow clinicians at the rate that we're getting children and adults that need speech services. If so, As a field, we need to start to recognize this and think about our caseload and think about what we're doing and how we're viewing our patients and our services to accommodate this, which involves triaging and it also involves discharging. And you always talk about this episodic care. We don't discharge children. Like I have a lot of therapists I work with who have been seeing kids for years and years and years and years and years and they're never getting discharged. And first of all, these poor children don't need to be doing speech every week, their entire childhood. That is insanity. And also we have to think about it. Okay. If we've reached a plateau, if we've reached a certain point, how many of these kids are on the wait list that desperately also need services? And this child isn't receiving services for years and family can carry over what recommendations we've made. So I encourage you to think about episodic care to a, allow you to see more kids B allow parents and caregivers to feel more comfortable because I think when you say, okay, I'm going to see you for this amount of time and then I'm going to give you a break. It kind of forces the caregiver to take more responsibility. And it also shows them that they can do it because you're not there every week. I think there's like this fear of I've been getting speech with, for my child for so long. Like I don't necessarily know what to do. 
And I do agree that I work a lot in my clinic about training and in-services and building comfortability. And so what Michelle was talking about and what are, what are clinician strengths? Yes. Especially with feeding and swallowing. If you don't have training and you don't feel comfortable, like you shouldn't be getting those kids. Michelle and I talk about that. We know this, but if there are a ton of very young, early language patients on your caseload or really young autistic kids that are non-speaking and don't have a great alternate means of communication. I think those children, we need to work to triage them to the top of the wait list comparative to a child that receives services in school and is working on perfecting specific sounds. Do I think that both children deserve services equally? Yes. Do I think that based on research, we need to make sure we're getting those younger kids who have never received services and have no consistent, reliable means of communication in a little bit sooner? Also, yes. And there's no perfect answer to this, but these are all things to kind of consider. Yes. Yes. Okay. So Colleen brought up a point certify like very few therapists in your area, very difficult area to triage. Yeah. Also, then you definitely need to meet our sweet friend, Brooke Bielman, who is like this phenomenal agency clinician and loves lymphedema treatment. So yes, 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 yes. Yeah. But I also so, call, like you think about it and Michelle and I relate to this because every kid on my wait list right now is either an infant failure to thrive feeding tube trach and vent, every child needs care so badly. And so I see where you're coming from of like, okay, how do I triage it when like, I feel like every person on my wait list is like necessity top priority. And that's really hard. And then you're like, okay, well, how do I also help mentor and train other clinicians in my area when I could fill three caseloads with my wait list, which I don't have an answer to, but I feel like Michelle could <laughs> so have more questions. <laughs> I'm sitting here at a very interesting season in my life and to be like super raw for a moment. My husband has had a job change in his job, right? So he started traveling and I left the university back in December so that I could focus more on our family and some professional roles that I've been working on with Aaron. And I also wanted to be mentored. And sometimes when you're the person who always takes the reins and always does the mentorship, you pour from an empty cup. So there's a new song out, fill my cup, run it over. And I love the song. I listen to it on repeat. Yay, Caleb. But so I went to work with Irene Ingram, who's this phenomenal occupational therapist. She's like world renowned for like what it is that she does. And I have had her fill my cup since January. And then that fabulous Mr. Dawson had a job change. And so I had to resign. I was still driving an hour and 15 minutes, one way to work three days a week, just so that I could learn and grow. And within a matter of like three weeks, I'm, I'm walking away. So like Tuesday's my last day with this company and I love them, but the good Lord says, be here now. So now I'm back in Midlands with Midlands therapy and they're phenomenal and it's wonderful. And I have this huge sense of peace, but at the same time, one of my younger coworkers who had never worked with AAC prior to me being there, and we have 
30 some trials running on various touch chat. We go heavily with talk to me technology. So we got touch chat, we got lamp. There's a couple prolo Q to go trials. I mean, the ones that we haven't concluded by Tuesday, she will have to take over, but I had to start telling my patients. I have had family members, caregivers break down that I am leaving because I was their lifeline. I was the person that introduced the first foods and brought in those new words and access methodologies. And now there's a wait list that was unanticipated. It's a triage list that was unanticipated because of my absence. I knew the absence was coming, but the caregivers did not and offices having to shuffle. So it becomes, who do we need? So to piggyback on Aaron, when situations like that change with staffing, it was, how can we reach out after consent has been given to the schools to empower the school-based clinicians? And that's what we've done. I have done more phone calls with school-based clinicians to ensure that those individuals are empowered to continue working with new devices that have just been recently improved within the last couple of weeks. And we've been discharging the students as they've been transferring over. And it was the ethical decision to make because I have set the receiving clinicians for success, right? So age, medical fragility, the duration that they've been, consideration of clinical area of expertise, And if they don't have clinical expertise, then we need to move here, here, and here. And also the power to say, no, I am not the right therapist or no, I know your child needs services, but Erin can tell you, we've had a wait list of in excess of six to nine months. I mean, when I had my private practice, my wait list would be a year. And I would just say, I'm sorry, I can't get to you. Please reach out here. Please pursue teletherapy here because it was not a viable option. And when you're triaging your wait list, it's okay to say, to say no, and then follow it with, but have you reached out here? And if you can't do that, then hire someone who can, because if you're a bleeding heart and a softie, like Aaron and myself, having somebody else in the office that are like, no, we can't do that right now. (laughs) Well, Michelle, what you did a really good job of is knowing what your strengths are. And then when a child got to a certain point and still needed therapy, but they were at a point where they were more medically stable, they had a safe diet and, or they were utilizing an AAC device, but still had a lot more language to grow and needed a lot more support. You said, okay, this is where you can go now. And it's not saying that you're better or whatever than the other therapist is just saying that your skill set was this specific point in time to get them to a point of healing. And now I know that you still need support, but here is someone and here is a practice that could maybe provide that for you so that then you could pick someone else up from the wait list who desperately needed referrals and coordination of care and strategies to help them introduce PO that maybe another therapist wasn't comfortable with because of their medical complexities or whatever it is. And again, if you tried to send me a kid that needed articulation therapy or knowledge for literacy, (laughs) I am not the therapist for you. Someone is way more advanced and can do a much better job at that. I would send them somewhere else. But we, we, again, we're, yeah, we're just like, I think it's important 
Yes. We, we are we, acknowledging. Yeah, go ahead. No, we do this on our eval day. Y'all, when it's our eval day, I am laying my exit strategy during my eval. And I tell them, I am only here to empower you to do what needs to be done to get your child to and the, whatever set point of healing that they have spoken into the universe. It's my job to empower them to find their muchness. And that's normally how I phrase it. And when that moment has come, then I am no longer the therapist that your child needs. And when you phrase it like that and just kind of remind them along the way, it makes it easier for you to relay that over. Okay. We spent 30 minutes talking about triage. I was going to say, well, we went there, like, let's like talking about, okay. So we've triaged a patient. Now they're on your caseload. Now they're on your caseload. Okay. So if this is an early intervention, you just uh, stress for this. Yeah, I just I had to stretch because my, my stress yeah. level went You're up. You're just so like I'm getting like, ready. Like this is yes. like got it. <laughs> I'm excited. Oh my god. Yeah, that's how passionate I was getting ready for a soapbox. Yeah. Okay. So if they're in early intervention, I love it that you called me on that. Everybody at home is like, what is she stretching for? It's a soapbox moment. Okay. So if you're in the world of early intervention, we should be doing caregiver coaching. This is not direct service delivery. This is not a, you're going to pull out a toy and you're going to make the kids start talking because you've got the cool toy and they're going to do what you want them to do. And it's your way or the highway and you kick the parent to the curb. If you're in private practice and the parent is dropping the child at your door and then coming back 30 minutes or an hour later, honey, I love you, but you're not going to be able to empower that caregiver in the 0.2 second drop off at the car. Right. So if we look at the research and talk about empowering in an hour, my favorite resource is the family guided routines based interview and intervention that is done. And I'll drop the website, but it's out of Florida. They have that one and it's been replicated and expanded. Thank you, Dr. Burns. She introduced this information to me and this is done within the Department of Defense for children that go through Department of Defense, like if their parents are DOD and they're stationed away, DOD actually has a killer early intervention program. So when a child comes in the door to early intervention for birth to three, you get a dynamic assessment. And when I mean dynamic, they do start out with a five domain test. All right. And we're looking at gross motor, fine motor, cognitive, social skills, and self-help skills. Okay. Language and self-help skills. All right. And there are different tests. You've got lap, you got dial, you got the BDI, the BDI is a bear to give. I almost said something different. It's not a fun test to administer. Then after that assessment has been completed, the different disciplines complete their assessments. Speech comes in. And when we give a dynamic assessment, you are not labeling a child with a language disorder based upon one assessment. And God help you if we're using the PLS-5, because if we look at the literature on the PLS-5, what we know is that test does not meet bare minimum requirements for specificity, sensitivity, and validity. Okay. What they did when they normed this test was they normed this test off of children with typical language, mild and severe, and they skipped the moderate and it inflated the standard test scores up one entire standard deviation. The bell curve went whoop. And guess what? Some 
I have seen some school districts love administering the PLS-5 and saying the child does not qualify, but then you turn around and give the child the self, which has excellent validity, specificity, sensitivity, and the kid's got like this moderate pronounced language deficit, right? So when we go in, we're not just doing one standardized assessment. You're doing an assessment, you're doing observations, and you're doing caregiver report, okay? And are you getting on the floor and actually playing with this child and interacting with this child in their daily routines to actually see how this language delay disorder, their pediatric feeding disorder, how it interacts and it carries over, right? Like what, how does it really manifest their day to day? And you know what? Yes. I hear the person in the room saying health insurance requires that I do one assessment in a day. Well, guess what? You can do an assessment and then follow back around with your next therapy session and have a therapeutic session. Oh, I can't remember the word for it. Dynamic assessment. Is that the word? Dynamic assessment, therapeutic diagnostic intervention session. That's the term. I knew I was going to get there. And you can have a diagnostic intervention session where you're doing that additional ob so that you can tweak your goals. The catch is once your goals are written, love, you can go back and change them because what if you did your eval and the kid was having a bugger of a day? Or what if you did your eval and it was like all of the lights were going that one day and then God forbid they had a seizure and then you go back the week following and everything's changed because that can happen. Well, and just write that in your eval. I write that in my eval and all of my evals. Yes. This will continue with diagnostic therapy to continue to inform goals based on need for a continued observation for an appropriate and functional plan of care, however you want to phrase it. But I also think really, really important part of your eval, which I, I don't know if, and I've been thinking about this and there's no formal way to do it. I do it informally. But if our goal is going to be for discharge, and if our goal is for caregiver, especially with feeding, to feel comfortable with our plan, we also need to be assessing the caregiver and the goals for that style and how they respond to you. And you need to start from day one of trying to build a relationship with that caregiver as well. Because you're not going to influence them if you don't have a relationship with them. Michelle and I talk about, I'm very passionate about relationship-based therapy, play-based therapy. If you don't have a relationship with the caregiver, then they're not going to trust your recommendations. They're not going to follow your recommendations. They're not going to buy into what you're doing. And they're not going to feel connected to the therapy that you're doing either. That's how we get stuck in the, oh, well, they'll eat for you, or they'll talk for you, or they'll do this. And I've been having a lot of conversations with clinicians where I work about difficult conversations. How do I have this difficult conversation? How do I bring up this referral? How do I talk to them about developmental kids? I'm having a hard time with them buying into the type of therapy I'm trying to do or floor time or whatever. What that tells me is you haven't built a relationship with them yet because the conversations become less difficult, the more, the stronger relationship you have with the caregiver, because I can't give you a guidebook on how to talk to a caregiver about developmental peds, or I can't give you a guidebook on how to bring up a referral or talk about neurodiversity affirming care. What I can tell you is that you need to build their trust from day one. And you may see a child and you may see eczema all over their body. And you may say, I know that they need to go to allergy, but if you come out the gate 
And you can tell this caregiver is nervous to even get to feeding therapy. Like even getting them to come to see you was a hard, hard road. They may not have the time. They might not have the energy. They may not have the money. They may not have the transportation to get to allergy. But if you build up their trust, chances are they're going to buy into it eventually. But that's also really, really important. Like I spend so much of my time connecting with kids, but like I spend probably equal amount of time connecting with caregivers because a we're coaching them, but also like they need to trust us just as much as the kid needs to trust us. And you can build trust with a caregiver through building trust with their kid as well. Like that's really valuable. If they see you connect with their kid, that's going to have more buy-in. But I think we feel like we can't be as honest with caregivers. We can't, if we can't say, I don't know, I think caregivers buy in more to me when they ask me a question, I say, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to figure it out and we're going to work together. And we're a part of a team, but like from day one, this should be, how do I help us become a team? And you as a therapist have to evaluate the child and also evaluate the parent or the caregiver, uncle, sibling, whoever I bring siblings into my session. I will like coach a sibling, how to like help their sibling with their AAC device or, and I will navigate an interaction to help them. And in some families, they would think it's overstepping, but I know which families are going to let me do that and which families aren't because I know the parent and, or the caregiver, aunt, uncle, all of that. Yes. Okay. So embedded in the chat box, y'all, I put in the caregiver coaching resources that are available on the FGRBI and I, there's like a boatload on there. So I would recommend, and they're free folks, these are free resources. I would recommend that you get on there and check those out. So when we go in, in South Carolina, the way it currently is written, the early interventionist or the service coordinator does the five domain test for EI. And then the SLP goes in or the PT, the OT, and we go in and do our initial eval. During that day, when I'm laying my exit strategy, while I'm doing my eval, I explain today, we're just going to do the assessment. And the assessment could be a clinical swallow eval. It could be a chart review on the documentation for the most recent instrumental swallow eval. It could be me doing the Rosetti because I prefer a criterion reference test as opposed to a standardized test because I want standardized tests test that child against other children. But there is so much implicit bias in these standardized assessments because they're typically normed off of upper middle class, Northeast white males. And America does not look like upper middle class, Northeast white males, right? So I like to use the criterion reference test Rosetti because it's built more along the stages of Piaget's developmental models and Brown stages of language development. If I'm looking at like language skills, because it allows me Plus, because it's criterion referenced, if like I have a five-year-old who has severe and complex needs, I know he's going to bomb out if I give him a standardized assessment. But if I give him the Rosetti and I'm like, look, but what we can do when we first gave the Rosetti, I mean, his expressive language skills were commiserate and mastery levels of like, uh, 12 to 15 month old, but look how much progress we've made. And now we're functioning up here at a 21 to 24 month old skill set. And so that's just me. I like to focus on what we can do. 
And that still gives me the data that I need to write for the insurance to approve, right? But when I go back on that second therapy session, that diagnostic intervention, I'm going to finish up whatever's left over from the first one that I didn't get to. But I'm also going to do the RBI interview. When you look at the RBI interview, it prompts you to ask open-ended questions about how that child functions from the moment their eyes open until the moment that parent closes their eyes when they go to bed. And it's how is that child's language or feeding disorder impacting every aspect of the family and the child's day. And that's how you establish the trust that Aaron talks about. That's how you build those healthy relationships. It's when you fully understand what's going on in this family's life as a unit. And this can be wicked scary when you first start out. If you were never taught on how to engage with the caregiver, if you were only taught direct service delivery, making the leap from direct service delivery to caregiver, it's scary, right? I mean, that's that's fair to say, but this is how we build those relationships. This weekend we got together and it was like a tease because like we got to hang out for like 24 hours with Aaron and the boys were like, mister. So, okay, go woman, go. No, I agree. I think that I teach my students, I will tell them evals for the children that I see are some of the more difficult. And it took me a while. I remember being a CF and feeling not confident because you have to use your clinical judgment to justify services. And it can be hard because you're like, I don't have the standardized test. I can't just say they scored this. They need services. I have to observe. I have to assess their play. I have to assess their language informally. And then I have to wrap it up in this pretty bow of justifying why they need to be seen and what type of therapy I'm going to be doing. And that's more difficult. And it just gets easier the more kids that you see and the more comfortable you are. And I don't love that. I like the saying, fake it till you make it as long as it's ethical and safe, but like knowing it's going to get, you know, knowing it's you're doing the best you can in the safest, most ethical way you're at getting support. But like the therapist I am right now, I like, I think about kids I saw two years ago and I'm like, Ooh, (laughs) I could have done a better job. Like, and that's fine. That's totally fine. But I think that leads into, and very similarly, I've also had this conversation about writing goals which we wanted to talk about because I remember starting out and you, you know, goal banks are great. Like it's great to have goals to look at, to pull from. But if you want my honest opinion, I feel like most of our goals shouldn't be pulled from a goal bank. And I feel like you should be able to write a goal freehand. Like you should, if you're going to be treating kids, you should be able to write a goal for them freehand. I mean, also how old is the goal bank? Like, right. I write goals based on my skill set, uh-huh. my training and my patient. Yes. And so you have to be careful about that as well, because you may look at a goal someone else wrote mm-hmm. that's we're using a type of therapy that they're trained in that maybe you're not, or that's based on their framework or how they're looking at the child, which is maybe not how you're looking. At. Yes. Wait, your sensory goals. I cannot write a sensory goal. That is not in my scope of practice. Okay. So we're supposed to adhere to our scope of practice. 
I do not have the trauma-informed courses that Aaron has. I do not have the sensory training that Aaron has. Therefore, it would be inappropriate and unethical for me to attempt to write a goal for regulation. I can look at a child and say, oh, we are not regulated in this moment. And I'm not going to. Uh, yeah, I can comment on it. But like, I'm not going to write a goal for that because like I. Well, and you also have to know what goal, what you're billing for. So like when I write a goal that's based off of floor time, if I'm using a floor time strategy, I'll write a goal that's incorporating floor time concepts, also incorporating language. Like I'm always going to link it to communication language, whatever, because that's what we're billing insurance for. And like, that's what we have to look at this framework. But I think when you start with goals, going back to caregiver, you need to ask and ask, depending on how old the child is, ask the child. I also will say this. It's very hard in an eval because you're asking the caregiver all these questions about this child and you're diving in their history. But I don't care how old the child is. I don't care what their cognitive level is. I will bring the child into the conversation and ask them questions as well or acknowledge them because I don't want them to ever feel like people are just talking about them when they're in front of them all the time because this happens to them and they may not know what you're saying, but they can tell by the tone of your voice yes, that you're talking about them. And so that's really, really important to just be cognizant of because our patients know that. And so asking them what their goals are, or even like talking to them about what your goal is and viewing their reaction to it, just helping them feel involved. But I want to know first, like what the caregiver's like big goal is for them. And sometimes you'll ask them that and it might start with like, oh, I want them to talk or, oh, I want them to be able to tell me what they want. But then sometimes it is like, I want them to be happy or I want them to find something that they love to do and like be able to pursue that. And so if you can really dive deep into what the caregiver's like really true goals are for them that can help you justify a lot of the things that you're doing, especially with the push for like neurodiversity affirming care and like thinking through quality of life, function, authenticity, and self-advocacy, like those types of goals. If you really get down to like what the caregiver really wants, I always circle back to that. Like, okay, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. I hear that you said, this is what your goal is. This is how these steps get you there. One thing Michelle didn't mention really quick, and we'll talk more about goals I really, really like, is the communication matrix. You can go online and there's like some free, you can fill it out on the computer, you can fill it out on paper. But if you go online, you can get like five free tests or your clinic can buy like a bunch of them. And I really, really love it because it breaks down communication into all these like pre-linguistic skills, all these social skills. And so it shows parents, especially for our non-speaking kids, like, A, look at all of these components that are necessary to be able to communicate verbally, if that's your goal, because most of the time that's a parent's goal, which is totally valid because that is how they're expecting their child to communicate when they're born. But also it allows parents of children that are non-speaking to say, look at all the things that they're doing. Look at all the ways that they're communicating. And here's a picture because we know dads like love a graphic, love a, a chart, those parents that like to see it. Like you can be like, look at all these things they're doing. So anyway, that's a really, really good thing to use for language. But goal-wise, 
I don't write a lot of goals at first. I think that's something that like some people get in trouble. Like I'll read an eval and it's like 500 goals and you're like, yes. what? It's impossible. How? Okay. So big picture, pull out, then go back. When we're in grad school, we're taught to write smart goals. Everything has to be quantifiable, measurable, and you're going to take data the entire freaking session. I challenge you to do an early intervention session with the clipboard and a pen and let me know how that's going to work out for you, friend, because you're going to get stabbed and the pen's going to get tossed somewhere or your clipboard's going to die. Okay. On that note, please take a class by Carrie Ebert, Carrie with the Steve, because she is phenomenal. We've had her on the podcast a couple of times. Like she does a whole thing on goal writing and it's just great. But yes, I understand you may do a standardized assessment and it revealed that the child needs to work on 15 different areas. Don't write 15 different goals. Your goals are supposed to be written in early intervention for billing insurance every 90 days. Every 90 days, we have to do every three months, we have to do a new plan of care. If you write 15 goals, then you have to chart on that. So write the handful of goals that you're going to meet within three months. Okay. I'm sorry. I got like. No, but I I do think like I get frustrated. And I also think going off of the diagnostic therapy, like, do your initial eval, write a couple goals, and you can always mm-hmm. add them. Because what ends yes. up happening, especially if you work in a clinic with a lot of therapists, our clinic, like if where I am at, at the point with my caseload, like I'm only going to eval a kid if I'm going to start seeing them. But if you're at a clinic, our clinic typically, like someone will eval a child, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going on that person's caseload. So you're writing these goals based on what you think the therapist might be working on. Also, our wait lists are a really long time. Are these goals going to be legitimate for them and appropriate in six months or three months when they're off the wait list? So thinking about that, but especially for feeding, like I'll write like two, three goals mm-hmm. and start out with that and then add based on what I'm learning about the child. And I remember one of my coworkers was like, You only have two goals right now. Is insurance going to be okay with that? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. It's going to be fine. Yeah. I'm going to add more goals, but instead of like taking all these goals, more goals doesn't mean better. And yes. I think we have to remember that like yes. what is important for the child. And also instead of, I need standardized tests and I need goals from the standardized test, which don't even get me started on that. We do not write something. goals to the test. <laughs> I know people that still do it all the time, but Instead of standardized test, write goals based on the test. Think about assessment. I really hope I still get on this train because I feel like I'm losing it. And then goals that are like both functional for the child. I had a really, really good point. I don't think it's really going to hit quite the way that it was in my brain before. But, oh, I'm going to- health organization, functional language, functional feeding within the framework of their daily routines- for optimal outcomes. Yeah, and you will a, not find I that on test. another nugget. Wait, can, okay. You think, and I'm going to give oh, the link. No, no, I have it. I have it. I have it. You got, okay. Instead of just like standardized tests and goals, you have to think about your treatment approach also. So like yes. what I will really include in my plan of care is like, okay, I'll be utilizing child-led therapy based on building their functional, emotional developmental capacities based on this strategy. And then I might also input there, like therapist is trained in sensory, which helps them build on those strategies to build regulation and language, whatever that's based on my specific training. I'm not writing goals for sensory integration. That's not, I don't have the official sensory integration training yet, 
because it's a lot of courses, but also that's not language. But what I will put in my plan of care is like, these are the strategies I'm using right now. This is what I'm implementing in my sessions. I may not be writing goals for all these things, but I will be commenting on them throughout the time I'm working with this child. And then look at these goals of like, okay, this is how we're measuring our progress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those don't have to be the, what strategies you're using, but really think about your overall goal and your overall approach for this child and put those in your plan of care and put the research behind it. And that's also what insurance is going to be looking for. Not just, did I write 10 goals and take data on all of them? Yes. Okay. So within the framework of early intervention, we have to chart parent caregiver involvement, right? So I always write a goal. And when I use early intervention, I'll even write this for my kids that are up to like five and six, because we're still engaging in caregiver empowerment. So I will say patient's family will verbalize comprehension, or I'll say patient's family will return demonstration of therapeutic interventions with I don't know, whatever percent accuracy, right. Or like, like however many strategies for three consecutive speech therapy sessions. So if I've got a child and I'm working on pacing, or if I have a child and I'm working on like, how do you properly hold them for like on a bottle? Or if I have a family and I'm working, I have one little guy that the mom wants him to sit at the table and I've gotten an eval and one treatment session in with this kid. And we're working on improving their relationship. And if she sets the request, Hey, I want you to sit with me. And he falls out because we're an older child. I'm like, okay, if you've set the request then how can we make it positive experience for him to come back to the table? Right. So we troubleshoot that and that's hard, but me just word vomiting and and dictating a session and doing direct service delivery is not going to make this successful. So one of my goals, y'all we're going five minutes over. One of my goals is to how do they relay this back to me? How do I know that they're going to be successful? And one thing that I do use pretty regularly, I have parents film me in sessions. I have, there's videos of me eating weird things all over the PD and Columbia Midlands region and doing therapy and acting silly because like they needed this, they needed to see this. And that's a great strategy. Okay. So one of my feeding goals, if I'm writing a goal for an IFSP, it has to be family safe, family friendly. So I may say, Billy Bob, and I don't have a patient named Billy Bob. That's just my go-to. Billy Bob will learn to drink from a bottle or Billy Bob will learn to eat purees without choking. Now, is that appropriate for insurance? Maybe if the insurance is the state early intervention system that's getting billed and it's a family-friendly one, but if I have Blue Cross Blue Shield paying, they may politely decline that goal. So if I write patient will tolerate safest least restrictive PO diet of ITSE level zero with a slow flow nipple for adequate hydration nourishment without overt signs, symptoms of aspiration, right? Like it's level zero is thin liquids. I've indicated which flow nipple we are like, and I've gotten super, super specific on my goal, but I can have that in my plan of care, but on the IFSP, it may just simply be 
patient will, or Billy Bob will drink from a bottle without choking. That's a great goal because the family can understand that. So you have to know who are you writing your goals for when you go to write the goals. And that ties back to who is the payer source, which ties back to which CPT code are you billing? And our approved CPT codes are on the ASHA super bill that I dropped here, which does tie back to one other piece. Not all states have all CPT codes in their approved CMS manual. So before you start billing within your private practice or your nonprofit, you need to make sure that you are aware of what CPT codes you even have access to, because you may have to advocate for them. Like I had to advocate for accessing like the dysphagia goals and the AAC goals. And now I can bill for the two hours it takes me to program a patient's new device, even if the patient's not there, because that's a billable code. It's on the ASHA manual and we fought and got it added to the CMS manual. So I am getting compensated appropriately. Eh, appropriate, that's debatable, but I'm getting compensated for the time that it takes to program that. Also, it really did give me a crick in my neck, but you know what? I programmed like six devices in the last two weeks. So good team. What other goals were over? Folks, does anybody have a specific question on a goal? Or anything we talked about? Yes. We should have done this as three different episodes, like one-on-one. Why do we always think we can do this in one episode? I don't know. You told me you were just doing triaging. And then I saw the two other things. I was like, oh. Yeah, I know. I like how we're whispering as if we just think that we're being recorded. Okay. Any other questions? Okay. Erin, can you give me one of your favorite goals before we roll? Also in the background, I can hear my mom asking Bear. You're fine. You didn't break the skin. (laughs) So I'm going to have to go take a peek and see what's happening in the living room. Uh, Do you have a favorite goal to share, Hug? I mean, I write goals for like patient will engage and share joy with SLP for the purpose of like building two-way communication because... I mean, and, but again, that's based on like a communication floor time goal, but that's my favorite. That's a beautiful goal. Okay. So folks, there it is. That's what we've got. That was a lot of ground to cover. Here's the deal. In all things, we do no harm and you must practice within not just your comfort zone, but within the skill set that you have acquired. And something beautiful happens. You graduate and you know a little bit about a lot. And then you get to spend the rest of your career. And hell, you get wake up one morning and decide, I don't want to do early intervention anymore. I want to work towards being an adult therapist or I want to be in coming from adults to go to kids. And then you can take the courses and expand that skill set. Those patients may be challenging at first. It could be challenging to do the triaging. It could be challenging to do those initial assessments. But again, we don't like fake it till we make it, but practicing and working through it and standing on the council of elders and seeking guidance and being able to say, I don't know, help me learn what resources Aaron and I are here. Hit us up on the Instagram page, First Bite Podcast, because we field questions there. I know Speech Therapy PD is rolling out a brand new mentorship program within their professional membership so that we can offer like additional mentorship and like one-to-one and small groups. But like I have reached out to professors and I've reached out to mentors in the field to say, please just mentor me and help me grow so that I can be successful here. And I got to say on this side, that's a joyful thing to be able to do. 
So if you don't feel like you're absolutely crushing it in these three areas that we talked about today, there is hope and it cannot be as bad as the goals I wrote once upon a time when I was vibrating and waking patients' patients up because now I know we do not need to do those things. But oh, Michelle Dawson from 15 years ago. So on that note, go team. Thank you for joining us. Please be sure to check us out on our upcoming live courses. They are linked on the Linktree account and on the First Bite podcast. And as always, we love it when you hit us up with your kind words on the Apple podcast. And thank y'all for joining us. Colleen, thank you. Thank you for participating. Thank you. Bye, hug. Feeding Matters guide system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually as well. Here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual 
annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.